G'day and welcome to Runners Radio. I am your host, Rick Mirabella, and we are here thanks to runners.com and Runners Ultimate, your running and fitness coach anytime, anywhere. Today we have a deep dive that could also be a coach's corner. We welcome our second Olympian onto the show today. The man in front of me is represented Australia in shot put at the 2012 Olympics in London. He won a silver medal at the 2010 Oceania Champs, as well as bronze medal in Delhi at the 2010 Commonwealth Games. He's now better known as the coach and high performance manager of New Zealand Athletics, the throwing team there predominantly. That group is headed by the world leading superstar that is Tom Walsh, among many others. I'm truly humbled to have this terrific coach and person on the show today. I welcome Dale Stevenson. Pleased to be here. Thanks for having me, mate. Steve, I'm stoked to have you here, buddy. Obviously, we're predominantly endurance-based show, but we are a high-performance show before that, and you are as high-performing as it gets as an athlete first for a decade, and now as a head coach and high-performance manager in New Zealand Athletics for the last six or seven years. We'll get to all that in a minute, buddy, but I just want to know over the last 30-odd years, that I want to take us to how you got to be, I guess, a thrower predominantly, because you did play a lot of other sports as a junior. Just take us through the youth of one Dale Stevenson. Yeah, geez, it's um, throwing it back a little bit, but uh, I had a really uh, fortunate upbringing and uh, came into the world uh, that was uh, in a stable family, growing, growing up down the Mornington Peninsula in the in the 90s, uh, well, late 80s. And then uh, I've got a, a younger sister, mum and dad, and grew up in a, a sleepy town of Muraduck, uh back in the day. and and nothing too over the top i'd say well from uh you know both my parents worked we weren't from uh, an incredibly wealthy family but we weren't really wanting for anything so uh like uh, so many of my contemporaries grew up in the backyard climbing trees kicking the footy you name it we we're into it riding bikes and uh sort of sort of followed that line for a while and got into uh, local sport, mates and mates, primary school, all that kind of stuff. Moved to the UK for a year to live um, with uh, my mum's work. Mum and dad were both originally teachers and then dad ended up working uh, in the environmental sector and only just recently retired, still does a bit of work in that, that realm. So I uh, had a really, really good mishmash, but um, certainly teaching's something, a, a profession that's run in our family. And that I'm... I sort of see that now in the work that I'm doing is coaching as an extension of teaching. So um, that's my lens on the world. And then got one thing to the next. Where do we, where does that end up? Probably around early 2000s. Uh, I was at a bit of a crossroads. I started sort of playing footy and, you know, the squeeze comes on. If this is something you want to do, go down that path. And I always enjoyed footy, but it wasn't really uh, gelling with the culture at, at a certain time. And... And, and something came about in the opportunity th largely through school initially to, to pursue an individual sport and athletics was that one and I just physiologically was suited to some of the throws events more so than the distance which is probably partly the reason that footy maybe didn't work out for me in the end anyway but um, yeah I, I got in touch with a really good coach based in Frankston and he kind of showed me the way he was a former Paralympian himself and uh, yeah, I fell in love with the sport of athletics and, and the throws events in particular. And uh, one thing led to another. That was my life for about probably six or eight years uh, full time between when I finished school and yeah, it'd be seven years from when I finished school to when I competed in London Olympics. And uh, that was that was that as far as my sporting career goes. But um, the the door's not fully shut on everything yet. I still still dabble in a, in a few bits and pieces now, but. Certainly not with a level of aspiration that I did for a while. I was going to ask you that because we do want to talk a lot about your athletics because it was a major and you're, you're an Olympian, mate, so it's as good as it gets. Um, it is the absolute pinnacle of sport, the Olympics, and you are an Olympian. So I was going to ask you, are so young still. To do what you've done in, we'll talk about your coaching and, and um, what you're doing now because that's crazy. We'll do that in about 20 minutes or so because this – let's spend some time on your athletics. Now, you're a good Aussie – you're very good Aussie Rules footballer, but the listeners overseas, we've spoke about Aussie Rules so often on this show, it is in a very, very aerobic-based game, lots of repeat sprint activity, lots of work at top end, but repeat efforts. Um, some mids are covering 15 to 18 kilometres a game. 
yourself at that time. Now you're you're looking very svelte in front of me right now, but you did not throw at this weight, surely. No. What are you, what are you sitting at right now? From I'm, the, I'm sitting at about oh just over just over the tons. So yeah. And what did you throw at three? At the moment, at my heaviest, I was 138. Wow. And that's when you were throwing lots. Yeah. yeah it was that was just prior to London Olympics. Yeah. It's a, and I'm, I imagine you played footy at about 115, 120. Is about it? that, yeah. yeah. So footy's a tough game to play like that. You did double in a few other sports, but was that post-rugby? Uh, that, that was po- post-throwing, yeah. So, so you, you doubled in rugby union? I did, yeah, and, and as recently as last year, pulled the boots on again. So uh, How did you find that? Yeah, look, my uh, my somatotype's more suited to rugby than it is to, to AFL. Yeah. So um, certainly physically felt a bit more at home and uh, low to the ground contact I've always been pretty comfortable with that part of the game So, What position do you play in Union and explain that because we're from Melbourne here at Runners and we obviously aren't across rugby as much Yeah cool so I was uh, the easiest way to think about it is um, you've got forwards and backs and forwards are the guys who do the majority of the moving bodies and tackling and the backs are the guys who run and, right. and score, the, score the points so I was a forward um, and sort of rotate around some of the positions in the forwards but predominantly Front row, hooker, and then occasionally doubled in the back row. Just so. a workhorse. Did some yeah. of your training carry over with your fast twitch pace? How was your 10-yard, 20-yard pace? Uh, yeah, good initially. Pretty I've always good. I've yeah. always been all right uh, off the mark, and uh, fast twitch-wise has, has been something that I've been relatively gifted with. But, uh, the yeah, the ability to back up and do it when uh, in, in, in the deep deep end of the game and when the boots get a bit heavier. 80 is, minutes um, in, yeah. Yeah, that's always been the challenge, but... Uh, that's more a mental thing, I reckon. It is, yeah. yeah. Massive respect for those union and, and league players. Different, Very different game to our Aussie rules, though. Steve-O, take me back. So you're 17, 18, 19, 20. You're, you're at uni. You went to uni now. You, Correct, yeah. You, what did you study at uni? I did a Bachelor of Education yep. and a Bachelor of Sport and Outdoor Rec at Monash. Tell me when you said, okay, this is, I know the individual sports for me because at the moment footy's not working out. But when did you start to realise, Christ, like Dally's on the horizon, I might actually be able to represent the nation here. Like, did you obviously you've obviously beaten lots of people at, at Clubland, um, Athletics yeah. Victoria. Yeah. You competed for Frankston, is that right? I did, and then about 2008, I was watching the Olympics, and uh, I was sort of, I was certainly not uh, a super gifted junior athlete uh, in any domain in any sport, and it was something that I thought, well, here's a window of time for me to have a have a crack, and realistically, it was it was after. What lit the flame was the Melbourne Commonwealth Games in 2006. Um, being at the MCG uh, live, seeing that, and actually I was in, in the, lucky enough to be in the stadium when a contemporary of mine, now a good mate of mine, Scott Martin, won the won the discus uh, gold medal there. It's famous from those ANZ ads. Is that uh, ANZ? He was, yeah, ANZ. Oh, actually, I can't remember. Household name for a bit. Yeah, it was. Months. Yeah, Mato was. So I lived with I lived with Scott. Um, yeah. Just It was after that. and But he was the flavour of the month for a little he while. Was. And, and to see our sport on the big stage in front of 100,000 people at the G, um, sort of gave me permission, also gave probably amongst my family, uh, for them to see that, hey, th- this is a sport that actually exists and, and there's a market there for it and uh, there's people doing it to the highest end in Australia. This isn't a sport that's just dominated by Germans and Russians. Um, you know, the, we've got a presence of it here. So after after Beijing Olympics, uh, I made a... A move. I obviously didn't compete in Beijing. Uh, made a move to have a crack at this, uh, legitimately because I wanted to represent my country, and uh, that was that was the motivator. It wasn't necessarily. Perhaps in retrospect, I should have set some more lofty goals. But um, given where I was at, and given what I thought I, I had to give uh, talent-wise, uh, I set about trying to trying to, you know, get my get my green and gold tracksuit and um, what I thought I could do. So. That was the start of that, and I moved uh, up to the city uh, to train with Scott and his coach Gus Popolo, um, based out of Ringwood, and and trained there for the the next four years with a pretty single pretty single-minded focus on going to the Olympics. Yeah, and I think as any youth growing up, even if you are more football cricket, I think the Australian colours are something that we always, especially at primary school and even early high school, we always dream to wear the Australian colours and, and you've done that at a very early age. So I feel like, especially the way you explained to the listeners, I wanted to get that out. Like it was only a few years before Dally that you weren't even near it. Not so even close. Not, no, even, not close. even close. He's a uni student, yep. throwing, throwing to put around a bit. But yep. like, I remember Dale, he's playing a bit of footy at local um, a local football league. 
So he's just come so far so quickly, which I want to get into that Olympic cycle, maybe the Com game cycle first, and just a bit of your training, I guess a bit of your weekly trot. Give me an idea of your weekly training cycle, if it was done weekly or if it was more macro than that. Um, when you were really at the peak of your training, give the listeners a bit of an idea, weights room and also in the in the ring, is it the ring? Yeah, in the ring. So we, we I had to change my body type um, pretty dramatically and uh, I was in the gym five days a week and every session was heavy. It was, uh, that was what was needed to elicit the, the stress and the response that I was ultimately trying to achieve. Um, and, and to get that adaptation, it was, it was a couple of years really between about the ages of 19 and maybe 22, uh, when it was five days a week, uh, large volume, a lot of Olympic lifting. Uh, and on top of that, we, we had a somewhat refined, uh, you could call it a nutritional plan, but it was basically get as much recovery in as you could to get up for the next session. Um, and then we would throw four days a week on top of that. So a lot of, lot of plyometric stress. And obviously as you're putting on extra, every extra kilo uh, adds a little more to the to the taxing on the on the body so um yeah it's not easy people think that, that guys who are 120 130 140 kilos are, um you know it must be nice to go and go and eat whatever you want whenever you want but it's not quite as simple as that and there's uh you do end up sort of eating by the clock a lot of the time you know you you, you watch goes you go I'd, I'd better have something now because i haven't eaten for two hours or whatever um and it does suck the joy out of it somewhat, but uh, you're not necessarily doing it for, for joy and for, no. for, uh, for giggles. There's, there's a bigger purpose that you're trying to serve, and I could throw further at 130 than I could at 100. So um, yeah. you just you do what you have to do. And I think people, whenever you get to the elite end, as Steve O did, like you can't, there's, there, you're right, there's many days it's just a hard grind. To throw at Olympic level, for years on end must be must be so tiresome because the stuff these guys are doing in the weights room, which is why I want him to touch on it. I'll touch, get him to touch on a bit of his movements as well. He said Olympic moves, some pliers, but it is not. He's not just throwing a couple of weights around. It is genuinely hard work, and a lot of our endurance guys. Yes, we lift and single leg stuff, and we want to lift heavy once a week. These guys, five days a week, the recovery from that is just it, it's it's torture. So you got to be able to regenerate. Okay, soak in the hard work, adapt, and do it again, and yeah. throwing and throwing in the afternoons or more. Yeah, know? that's right. We're throwing in the afternoons. I was working as well um, during this period because you know there's not a lot of money and uh, there's basically no money uh, in Australian athletics around, around field events at the moment. So uh, there certainly wasn't when I was competing, and I don't begrudge that at all. In fact, I think it made us stronger. Is that it is something we did because we wanted to do it, yeah. and and that that served us well. So the the drive to get up and do it and we predominantly trained in the afternoons uh so we'd train just because power sports generally lift better and throw better uh, in the evenings circadian rhythms are more favorable to they were for all of us to to go out and train so we'd train from you know 5 p.m do a throwing session finish that grab a quick bite to eat and then go into the gym and we'd be in the gym till sort of 9 p.m most days um and then go home rest feed repeat it's a, it's a definitely a tough lifestyle, and I, you're right. It's certainly not any of these power athletes. Um, just because they're not running 100k a week, please don't poo poo what they're doing. That is some of the hardest and toughest athletes on the earth, and that's why I was fascinated when Steve was in Melbourne for a couple of weeks. I just needed to get him on because, as a pro athlete, this is as hard as it gets. Tell me about. Give me a bit of an example of. Give me a, a four exercises that you might have done at your peak that you loved and you felt for you as an athlete in the weights room really, um, I guess, gain the best stimulus and adaptation for you? Yeah, I guess the one that I loved, which I kept going back to, was always squats because yeah. uh, I was good at them. Um, was relative, that like three relative. rep max, one RM? Yeah, we, had a, we tried German volume for a while, oh, so Jesus. like five tens, which is not quite the full 10 tens, which is proper German volume protocol, but uh, five tens for months on end, and then we'd slowly trim it down and, and end up doing some singles and doubles. So uh, once we get around the... You know, sort of three fours, three threes, uh, doubles kind of range. Then that, that was my real wheelhouse uh, because it was just something I felt I could do. Uh, if my attitude was right, then there was, you know, I, I could pretty much squat anything on any day. But um, yeah, beyond that, obviously Olympic movements, uh, your press, your major pressing movements, and then plyometrics on top of that too. So uh, it really is in throwing. You're trying to manipulate the uh, a velocity curve. 
um, and this, the same as you are in any athletic movement. So it's not just simply about how much force you can produce, but there is a time constraint on, on producing that force too. So that's um, it, that takes a toll neurologically. And uh, so things like bounding, uh, standing long jump, stair bounds, uh, explosive medicine ball throws, things like that, are, are always you know pretty standard fare for us. That's awesome, Steve. On our last episode. Uh, listeners, make sure you listen to neurophysiologist Dr. Dawson Kidgel because we spoke a lot about the force velocity curve and that kind of stuff. Mm. It's just coincidence that we get such an elite power athlete on post that. But these guys are doing this four or five days a week. And you spoke about the neurological, like the, the fatigue on that is immense. So the mornings, the sleep ins, if you can get it, is so important. Yeah. Yeah. Quality of sleep. If you can get it. Yeah, that's right. If you're not working. Yeah, if you're not working. So, I mean, with the athletes I'm coaching now, um, you can pretty much, when you look at a periodized plan, you can tell when they're going to be with it and when they're not because mm. uh, once you start adding in overloaded eccentric movements or heavy isometrics, things like that, it just the, the toll it takes on you neurologically, uh, you know, you, you do get the glazed over eyes and, and, and some zombie athletes for a while. But uh, the beautiful thing with, it, with individual sports and probably why I ended up gravitating towards it myself was that um, that's not seen as suffering. It's not a sacrifice. It's something you do because you want to do it. Mm. Um, and you, you don't make excuses for that or apologise for that. It's uh, it's one in all in, and and I spend no time uh, motivating my athletes now. And I probably like to think, as an athlete myself, I didn't take and didn't require much or any motivation because it's a choice you make to do it. And uh, once you make that choice, you just get on with it. Yeah, I did read that, and we'll get into your coaching a bit later. But I did read that about yourself, and I loved it. I respected that massively. And I guess if you're coaching these, some of these guys are the best in the world at what they do. Mm. You're right. You guide them and you teach them and you hopefully enable them to be self-sufficient as well, yeah. especially intrinsically motivated, which at that level you would imagine they are. Around your Olympic cycles, Steve-O, tell me about how, how how'd you feel walking into – or first, let's go to 2010. You're a young pup from the peninsula of Melbourne. How'd you feel walking into the stadium and going, well, and realistically did you think you could medal? Because you, you took a bronze away from that Games – how did you feel? Tell me about the, the weeks. Tell me about the, the Commonwealth Games, Village, and, and the like. Yeah, that's, that was my first real crack um, at, a, at a major event. And uh, there were some security concerns around uh, in Delhi it was, at the time. So that was sort of an overtone to, uh, to that experience in, in the lead up to it. But uh, I, I was really excited. It was my first major team. Uh, I was young. I think I was 22 at the time. So... Uh, I was pumped and ready to go. There was really nothing to lose. I knew I was in the mix, but uh, I certainly had had no ambitions of of winning it or uh, medals weren't even really on my mind. Really until probably, I think my final training session before the competition, I I had a really good training session and the stars aligned. I'm really great. My coach did a great job, got me in great shape at the time and uh, I put some training distances out there that I'd not thrown before. And then the last sort of 48 hours leading into the event was just business time. Um, and it came around, it's all a bit of a blur now. And I remember there being, uh, it was a little bit, uh, the actual, everything inside the stadium in Delhi was fantastic. Everything inside the village was fantastic. But outside that, India being India, it presented some logistical challenges. So um, I really put the blinkers on uh, pretty hard and probably uh, shut down away from my my family and girlfriend and all that kind of stuff, which we got to know down the line was just part of what, what happens when you get to the pointy end of an event. It's an incredibly selfish endeavour that we go on. So I was so, so dialed into it. And uh, I actually remember very little about it uh, other than uh, I remember my second throw of the competition and it landed over. The, there was a tape at 20 metres and uh, I'd never thrown over 20 metres and... Uh, and the shot landed over the tape. Uh, I also threw a warm-up throw that landed over the tape, and I thought, okay, I'm good to go here. And uh, there were the, the first the guy who finished first was a, a Canadian guy who threw 21 meters, which was beyond me at the time. And then a Jamaican guy threw about 2040 or 2030 to 20 meters. This is, um, and then I was next. I ended up uh, in third place, and there was there were five guys within about. 25 centimetres uh, between myself and whatever that would have been seventh place or something like that so uh, I sort of fought I beat the guys that I could beat on the day um, and, and came out of it with a bronze medal which was yeah unreal and you threw 20 uh, in the end it was 1999, 1999. so the tape was off so I, uh, they um, the way it works is that 
uh, they measure it with uh, it's everything's electronically measured in yeah. major championships now. So with a, a tape, you used to get a little bit of slack, and yeah. um, you'd often find a centimeter or two here or there. Variance, yeah. But yeah, there's no variance now with the electronic. Well, uh, but what an effort line. to throw as a 22 year old kid, your best ever throw. Yeah. On your first ever major champs, and that says something about the man as well. We're not going to go too much into psychological today, but that what you were spe- the dialing in process. Like, yeah. You're very unselfish as a human being, I know that, but I think all elite performers at any level would be like that, it, regardless if it's athletics, art, music, like if you, you, or the flow state or whatever you want to call it, if you can get yourself in that state, it's actually quite a good strength, I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And something I've always admired in others, mm. uh, in other people in life, not just in athletics, is, is the ability to walk towards pressure when it comes mm. on. So late in a game of footy, when everyone's tired, who wants the ball? Who stands up and says, put me on the ball? Who stands up and says, you know, kick it to me? Um, and the same in business, in life, uh, in relationships. The, the people who, are, when, things, when, when things are really under the screws, those who put their hand up is something I've admired in others and it's something I've tried to train into myself as well. So, um, uh, yeah, I guess that was probably a small dose of it as a young man for me yeah. to be able to walk towards that pressure rather than away from it. Correct. And, um, and yeah. And you dial in, know what you've, and it's just the simplicity or the minimalism, whatever you want to, whatever you want to describe it as, nothing else apart from this, this project yeah. right now. Yeah, and right. you end up throwing a, a PB at the time. So this period is definitely a peak time for Steve-O. He's, he's just won a medal for his country, which for all of us, like growing up in Australia, 23 million of us, we, we would love to do that. Well, Dale's done it. He's won a bronze at a yeah, um, young age of 22. That next couple of years was big, so you had the Olympic cycle. It was in full swing. You won another silver and another major champs. Take us through the next two years of training life, I guess, as an Australian hopeful Olympian and I guess... And then I want to have a couple of stats about your food and your lifting kilos in a minute. But let's just take it yep. for the next couple of years. Yeah, so that was probably the, the catalyst for me um, being a bit of an unknown. Everything was a bonus. And then after 2010, after the Commonwealth Games, uh, you start getting knocks on the door from Athletics Australia and the Victorian Institute of Sport came on board and a few sponsors and bits and pieces. So uh, that was full affirmation to say, hey, look, you've got two years until the Olympics. Let's see what we can do. Um, have a crack at it and uh yeah that was that was a logical progression so i I knew that uh whilst i had most of what i needed here domestically in australia to get what i needed done uh, the reality of our sport is that it's based overseas Um, it's there's a chunk of the season that's in the u.s and then uh it's quite eurocentric big races the big meets a lot of the major championships happen um in europe so uh, 2010 through to 2012 was uh, at least half of my life, I would say, was based overseas and struck up some good relationships with with a few good bases and places to train, uh, one in particular in the US, which is just outside of Atlanta. We still go there now. I've uh, been going there for 10 years plus and uh, largely built on the, my time there as an athlete. I, I got to know some coaches and uh, the University of Georgia there, which is yeah about an hour and a half outside of Atlanta, is a great place to for us to spend time, and and they were good to me. I ended up uh, training there for months on end, and and through my qualifying distance for the London Olympics, uh, whilst I was over there. So what was that, mate? Uh, through twenty sixty three, yeah. uh, twenty meters sixty three. So that was at Clemson University uh, in South Carolina in, in the awesome. US. So that was that qualified me for London uh, at the time. 20 meters 50 was the standard you needed to throw to qualify yeah. and uh, yeah that was uh i was over the moon when I, I had a really good probably six week lead up uh, of consistent training i was healthy for a long time which was always a challenge when you're at the pointy end mm. is can you string together consecutive blocks of training and and had a had a bit of a dream run with good weather and good training partners and then a competition came up and we just thought let's go do it and um it was go time so the stars aligned for me there that that qualified me in uh, might have been I think it was about April 2012, and then four, uh, four months. Yeah, I had about four month lead up, so I, I then came home and um, did a bit of a recharge, and then yeah, the, the Olympics 
in 2012. Walking in, opening ceremony, did you get to do it? I did do the opening ceremony. Um, it's a nice little box. A, it is a nice little one. It's a contentious one. Not everyone wants to do it, no. but um, London was really well organised and that is a pretty pretty well-oiled machine there, so they got us in and out pretty painlessly mm. and um, we were good to go. My event wasn't for a few days after the opening ceremony. So yeah, South Athletics is the second week, usually, listeners. Correct. So, and you, yeah. you were pretty early in the... I was the first yeah, morning yeah, of the first yeah. day. Yeah, yeah so day seven or eight of the right. actual Olympics. Yeah. Tell me, tell me for the Olympics and you just, when you're on that, when you're in the ring um, and you're just a young 24-year-old Australian just going, how the hell did I get here? And then just, I guess, your throws in the Olympics, how you feel you went, look, it's uh, you're still one of the best in the world as we speak. Yeah, I underperformed uh, at the Olympics and there's a few reasons for that. Uh, probably wasn't totally in the moment at the time. Um, I don't want to say I was a tourist, but the, the Olympics... If I had my time over, I'd definitely do it again. And um, maybe I don't, I don't didn't at the time. I didn't feel like I had stars in my eyes, or um, I was out of my depth. But uh, I certainly wasn't approaching that competition feeling like it was something that I could uh, really stamp my mark on. So I, I, I regret that. And uh, maybe it was a lack of self belief at the time that that, or maybe it was just inexperience. I'm not sure, but. Uh, that said, ama- amazing time. Uh, I'm really proud of myself that I, I got there, and um, the the overall experience was w- walking away from it was uh, really feeling like I needed to breathe out because I felt like I'd been squeezing pretty hard for a few years, uh, pushing towards getting that qualification, and and once I got there, um, you realise that it's not the be all and end all of everything that life goes on and and there are other things in life to achieve so um, that led me down a different path after the olympics but um yeah i was still still am quite proud of myself for that for that period of my life but it does feel like a lifetime ago yeah it does yeah for you because you've done so much since but i tell you like you should i think you're being quite harsh on yourself well you're a 24 year old kid who who literally three years four years earlier like, like you said nowhere near it yeah and then so at beijing you were Get, getting keen like watching and then 12, yep. four years later the next cycle you're standing in the ring so phenomenal effort and you can I, I think it says a lot about you and in, in your I guess in your mindset performance mindset in the fact that you could just you could really dial in and you went you just lived you lived away from home you lived away from your family and friends and just got it done yep. and that takes a bit of mental toughness in itself let alone the 9 10 15 sessions you're doing a week which you were doing Correct, at yeah. your peak Phenomenal effort, and you'll be proud of that for the rest of your life. Your kids and grandkids will be as well, because I tell you what, there's not many Olympians walking around the streets. Tell me about the um, at your peak, because this is some big numbers. What's your average? What was your average like calorie intake per day on on average? And your one RM squat or leg press or deadlift <laughs> on bench press? Give us a couple of numbers. Yeah, a couple of numbers. Uh, okay, that's the uh, the age old one. The okay, as far as consumption goes, an average day we. We didn't really uh, dial it down to a certain bandwidth of kilojoules or whatever, but yeah. uh, the the guiding rule was uh, after every training session you wanted to get at least sixty grams of protein, which is it's a lot. Uh, it's a lot. That's you know six scoops or you know depending on depending on what you're taking if you if you're into protein shakes. Or so uh, it was a whole lot of protein powder, um, and and then I would say what's a fairly balanced western diet um veggies meat etc i i've always uh i've been more inclined towards uh fats and oils than i have towards sugar so um i would routinely knock over a a roast chicken from the supermarket uh just as a, a snack um largely there were financial constraints too so that was my 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 go-to would be after training and swing past the supermarket and usually if you, you finish the gym at nine o'clock p.m p.m yeah go past and they've discounted all the roast chooks for that night Good uh, value, they're, that. they're trying to move them on so you you could pick up a you know a couple, a, of, chooks. Two, a couple of chooks for two bucks or five bucks each and um that'd see me through so yeah look again it, it wasn't as uh refined as maybe things are now with my coaching hat on uh, with my athletes i'd probably give them a bit more guidance around that stuff but um, it was around protein, more is better. And then uh, just making sure, as we mentioned earlier, with the neurological fatigue, uh, immunity takes a hit. So okay. 
making sure sleep was looked after and and then your other part of the question was around lifting numbers so uh bench 222 um for a single yep some kilos listeners two kilos, yeah, that's yeah. A, definitely you don't get that kilos. confused that is kilograms yeah 222 kilos it's outrageous uh squatted 315 for a double um for, so two on 315 kilos Wowzers. uh full squat uh, clean 205 kilos. That's about it, I think. I can remember no that. Daddy numbers. No, real. No, we didn't push the deadlift too hard. Just um, yeah, exactly. yeah, not enough. Uh, well, that well, not enough the force time for you, curve. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Um, that, that was kind of it. But then all this stuff and and things like vertical jump and standing long jump and stuff like that. So three three meter. 16 or 3 meter 18 standing long jump at 135 kilos so. what an athlete that is yeah, outrageous yeah I couldn't do it now but no <laughs> but the neurological adaptations for a fellow like Steve are massive like he's really trying to push that you're trying to push that envelope push that envelope and recover sleep were you sleeping okay at the time were you yeah I was napping a lot yeah, during boy. the day so uh, I'd, I was teaching uh, primary school teacher yeah. and I'd get home uh, have a nap and then go to training. And if I didn't get that nap, it would really affect the quality of my training. Uh, mm. And then, yeah, lights out, conked, and and sleep right the way through. So that was uh, that was life for for that period of time. And um, it, yeah, as I said, with the co- athletes I'm coaching now, it's it's the same story because it, it really does knock you about. Sleep is everything, and we speak about it all the time on, on our videos. And you would have heard me go at about it ad nauseum, but it literally is the most underused recovery tool. Absolutely, especially for people that aren't quite in tune with with what they should be doing sleep is everything especially when you're annihilating your nervous system like these power athletes do but if you're a distance runner or a triathlete then so are you so you need to be sleeping and if you're not you need to make allowances and make changes because you will not continue to progress if you're not getting the recovery days you wouldn't take shortcuts around your training right if you if if that was on your training program and, and it said uh, you know, five 1K reps, you wouldn't just do three and say that that's, that's high performance or that's good enough. So sleep's the same thing. You, if you're not ticking all of the boxes with your sleep, then uh, you're not doing a full disservice to get that rest and repair cycle um, in your favour. What Steve said there is spot on. You wouldn't take shortcuts. I personally write on a lot of our guys, remote guys and guys in here, plans, literally regenerate and mobile. Look, if you write regenerate, I feel like people start to understand they've got to soak it up, soak up the work, have a day or a day of just sleep. I think if you put a rest day and they just think it's just another day and they can, if, you, if you're stressed at work or if you're stressed in any other aspect of your life or if you're doing something that isn't training but still physically or mentally stressing you, you're not going to get the bang for your buck from mm. the work you've done the 48 hours prior. So you must take recovery days seriously. I know that's easier said than done for general pop if you've got four or five kids or you've got yeah. a business to run and I understand I understand that's easier said than done but just being aware of it if you hear this again for the 15th time when you hear Steve-O say he said, well, I've got to be better I've got to be better at that I've got to get to better touch earlier if I know I've got a bit of stress or maybe some meditation or maybe I'm not going to take something that isn't that important as seriously and then it'll eliminate some of my stress levels for that week because we just want to continue to progress. And if you feel like you're banging your head against the brick, the brick wall, grinding, 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 and only taking a second off here, or even worse, plateauing or, or going backwards, it's possibly because of this, more than likely, that you're not recovering well enough. These guys are the best in the world, and especially what Steve-O does now with his athletes, I can't imagine how much you would really dial in on their recovery. Yeah, absolutely. And we know we, there's more and more research coming out all the time, but... It, it, just comes back to the fundamentals we know if you don't sleep well you you get autoimmune uh, pathology and and inflammation numbers inflammation markers constantly going up so uh, there's the there's the feeling refreshed but then there's also just your body's not primed to to do a repeat effort if uh, a repeat effort not necessarily the next rep but just to live the next day mm. um you don't make as good of choices we're not as clear so uh, any anyone who's uh had a a baby like i have in the last year as well we see that firsthand, and you know the toll that it takes um, when when you get sleep deprivation. So that's one one end of the pendulum, and just learning to treat yourself well as a, as a human being is um, 
is a huge part of the equation. That's exactly 168 hours in the week, um, Dale. And you really, if you're an Ironman out there and you're listening to me, you might be training for 20 of them. So the other 148, we need to make sure we're doing the right stuff. You can't just be flogging yourself and then expect to improve. Congratulations, Steve, by the way. What now, what a name? Yeah, Mia. So she's Gorgeous. just turned 10 months old and uh, Beautiful he's, he's age. keeping me on my toes. Yeah, good boy. It's uh, much harder than the grind of training at times. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Now tell me about the transition. So um, a lot of listeners will know Tom Walsh, who's a, a very famous putter. Uh, thrower. Tell me about the transition. I know you don't just put on the look of Tom, but that's just the kind of a go-to. Yep. 2012, 13, 14, when did you start to progress into coaching, high performance, sports science, and how did you end up in New Zealand, brother? Yeah, so a bit of a, bit of a uh, twisted tale, but I was living Bayside in Melbourne and uh, working, teaching in the city, and uh, there aren't many people in this corner of the world who understand uh, rotational shot putting. So that's for those who don't know anything about shot put, which is most, and that's cool. There's sort of two styles. Um, there's what they call the glide, which is maybe what you did at Little Athletics or at school where you sort of shuffle across the circle in a straight line and then just throw it. And then there's a rotation, which is uh, you, you spin and then let it go. So. Um, rotational shots what I did and it's what the majority of the top throwers in the world do now um, especially males it's almost exclusively rotational and it's certainly the pendulum swinging that way it's a biomechanically superior way to um, to throw the shot so anyway uh, there aren't that many people in, in, in this part of the part of the globe who understand what it's like to, to be an athlete to be aspiring um, in our sport and, and in our events so uh, at the time I finished, I was mid-20s and there were a couple of guys around who I'd had a bit of a relationship with and they were coming through the ranks, one of which was Tom. Um, Tom's from New Zealand, from the South Island of New Zealand and uh, he would come over a couple of times a year and stay with me and sleep on my couch and after I'd finish work, we'd go out and train and I'd just help him out informally and um, yeah, like we talked about earlier, there was it was pretty pretty uh, humble time and he'd helped me out he, he, Tom's a builder by trade and he helped me build a deck at my house in Parkdale and um, in return I'd, I'd give him a couch and you know feed him and whatever and that was that was the humble beginnings really and uh, he got a bit of a roll on and started to figure it out Tom's a uh, very driven young man he's not a young man anymore he's 27 but um, he uh, won a bronze medal at the get this right 2014 world indoor championships so that was uh the catalyst two years out from an olympics where the governing bodies and the federations are kind of figuring out okay who who, who's going to be in play um for for the next olympics so this is about two and a half years prior to rio olympics and they said we need to put some support structures around uh, tom and and a position became available, to, a paid throws coaching position, um, which there aren't many of in the world. There's a few in the States around college positions, but that's there basically, a, it's a recruiting contest. There's a bit of coaching that goes on. And then there's some in Europe with the bigger federations, Germany, Poland, um, countries like that. So uh, New Zealand advertised, it got sent to me uh, by the high performance director over there and said, hey, have a look at this. If you're interested in applying, let us know. I ran it by my wife and we thought yep that looks pretty cool but it's in new zealand thanks but no thanks she had a good good job here we just bought a house um, i had a good job here life was ticking along um, we were due to get married and boom 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 so I scrunched that one up threw it in the bin and sort of two weeks went by and then we were sitting down on a weekend and having a chat and then it came back up again that you just i couldn't let it go this this position and um, this opportunity and and we thought you know what what if we did give it a go um, it's only, at the time we're thinking short term it was likely to be two years through until the Rio Olympics and and we did we did we didn't sell our house uh, in in Parkdale or whatever applied for the position there was uh, it was pretty hotly contested from people around the world who were who were applying for this role some people certainly far more experienced than I was at the time. And uh, one thing led to another. They, I got a call and they said, we'd like to offer you the role and got the option to be based in either Auckland or Christchurch. So uh, 
yeah, we just thought you know, people people go to the South Island of New, New Zealand for holidays. It's uh, it's where they film Lord of the Rings, and anyone who's been to Queenstown, it's it's a tremendous, beautiful, stunning part of the world with a, a great quality of life and beautiful people and great culture. So. Uh, we just said, well, let, let's go to Christchurch for a couple of years, and we did. Uh, that was late 2014. I went first for a couple of months, and then my wife sort of finished up work here and, and moved over with me. And uh, one thing led to another. I finished fourth at the World Championships in 2015, which was bittersweet. Things were going in the right direction, but no one likes to finish fourth. Um, and then we thought, well, what changes do we need to make between now and Rio? Uh, lined a few things up. Uh, ended up finishing with a bronze medal in Rio, which was unreal. Olympic medals, no disrespect to Commonwealth Games and World Championships and things like that, but the Olympics is what you grow up, what I grew up and, and what a lot of athletes, certainly Tom and others included, grew up wanting to do. Um, to walk away with an Olympic medal was, was pretty unreal. So that said, after 2016, uh, obviously third's good, but it's not first, so... We, th we thought, is, is our business here done? We chatted with my wife. We were, f again, feeling pretty at home over there. And the, the Christchurch was being good to us. The, we knew the next phase of life was likely to be starting a family and things like that. So we committed to New Zealand, um, tied up a few loose ends, sold our house in Melbourne. And my wife, Lauren, got some work over there. And, yeah, away we go. So that was a real, a real commitment to to try and do this properly and I'm now lucky enough to have a, a good, really good squad of athletes and uh, a, a small team around me, a, a great team around me of assistant coaches and and uh, support personnel as well as some young aspiring athletes but the, the work's not done with Tom um, and others either so uh, we've got the Olympics coming up next year and, and we're going pretty hard at uh, making sure we're, we're not on the bottom step of the podium that time, but maybe maybe a little further up. So exciting. So, Tom, well, a massive name in, in athletics and sport. So I'm not – obviously I'm in athletics, but I'm not in the froze, but everyone's heard of this bloke. Right? So Steve-O is his, his coach and mentor. With the, the job you've got, and like you mentioned it very quickly, but these roles don't come along. Like, there's a couple, like you said, a couple in Europe, NCAA, but like I said, it's a bit of a different – theme of that yep. it's just who, who, you, who you can get in the joint really yeah, that's right um new zealand done it so well and i haven't seen steve in over a decade but i've heard i've read a lot about him we've been speaking a bit by text we've got mutual friends and loved watching his journey to get this role is massive mm. to hold it and to be offered the job at such a young age you're now in charge of these young throwers as well so the best in new zealand or at your your complex yeah largely they, yes. do they all come down to the south yeah, so we've got a couple of high-performance centres, one's in Auckland and, and one's in Christchurch. You, you so. float between both? Yeah, so we've got uh, – there are a staff of coaches, so there's some of our athletes work with coaches in Auckland, yep. um, some of our throwers are up there, but um, I guess my part of my role is as, a, as the national coordinator for all of the, the coaches and athletes in the throws events. So. Do you have to do much – to your methodology, Do you, can you set up – the systems, the programs in place, or have you got people in charge of that? Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of both. So uh, it's quite malleable with a small population in New Zealand and uh, not a lot of precedent around mm. organised, systematic, longitudinal programming for, for event groups. So um, one thing New Zealand did probably wisely about a decade ago was uh, they chose, rather than spreading all of their resource across every event group and trying to be good at sprints and hurdles and relays and distance and you know, and pole vault and all the rest they said we can be really competitive at throws and new zealand's also got a proud heritage in middle distance um, when you look at snell and hellberg and nick willis and people like this so they've they've said we're going to channel the majority of our of our resource and and our time and energy into being world class at these events and uh, rather than having you know five part-time coaches in each event because we don't have enough money to do that we're going to go all in on on this and um which is pretty cool for us and and throws is really well supported it's you know tom and there's another valerie adams who's a, a multiple time world champion and olympic medalist um jack o'gill who's a world junior record holder all, all kiwis all active at present and they're celebrities in new zealand really i mean you could 
walk, you go out with Tom now and, and walk down the street and he, he gets tapped on the shoulder the same as, you know, Gary Ablett Jr. would walking, wow. walking through Melbourne. So it's, it's a different climate over there. Um, we're really lucky and we're getting a lot of great support and resourcing. Uh, and with that hand in hand, there's a, there's a duty to, uh, for us to make the most of the opportunity because we, we don't know if it'll come around again. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a golden age at, at the moment. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's an exciting, but uh, there's a, as I said, there is a responsibility with that resourcing for us to, to make the most of the opportunity. Yeah, responsibility, it's exciting because New Zealand is, um, and as a, as a young fellow, I used to love the distance running and the coaching and Arthur Lydiard and you spoke about Snell and McGee and mm-hmm. Helberg and, and now Nick Willis and, and Rod Dixon and these kind of guys. It's just it's punched above its weight forever, and to finally and now the throwers, of course, the last decade, to finally to have the foresight to put the energy and the finance into people like you and a high performance team around you is just it's ahead of the game for mine. Look, it, it's it's you've like you've got your own little mini NCAA team around. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it really is. It's and, pretty cool. And we probably don't realise it at, at the time. Um, you know, everyone's got their problems and their battles that they're fighting. But yeah. uh, when I compare it to other parts of the world, and yeah. even coming back here, and we were at the Australian National Champs a few weeks ago, and um, and I'm Australian born and Australian blood, I'll always be. You know, a large part of me is, um, you know, hugely loyal to this country, and I'll, I'll forever be that way. But um, I think we can learn a lot from New Zealand. Mm. I think there's there's things that are happening offshore. Um, that we, if we weren't so proud, we could admit that maybe there's a better way. And um, and I tip my hat to uh, even the the recent response um, around the the Christchurch massacre. You've seen the way that the country in New Zealand has responded to that, and that's um, the political climate there is another example of, of perhaps ways that we could we could bring back into this country and in, in, into Australia and uh, and improve as well. Mm, no, look, it's a great nation, and they always obviously they're our our brothers and sisters as well over there, but. From a sports science perspective, they've always been sensational, and I've loved. I've got a lot of even even their uh, coaches in sports science is a fantastic. So, you're in the the heart of it, or you are leading the game. From a from a performance point of view, how hands on are you day to day? Because uh, obviously you're managing both sites as far as you're managing coaches, you're managing athletes. Not just with Tom, but with all the athletes, how hands on are you? Are you in the daily grind of coaching still, or you're a bit more? Can you step back and actually observe? Tell me about the day to day. Yeah, it's, it started out uh, very much hands on, and that was probably my preference. It's just what I thought needed to happen, and then uh, over time, uh, it became pretty quickly apparent that this wasn't something that I could do on my own. And if I wanted to make real change, longitudinal change. Uh, I needed to work with, I needed to build a team and I needed to bring other people on this journey with me. So uh, I pulled back a little bit and uh, entrusted a team around us to to uh, take the reins and, and develop themselves, uh, which is always challenging because uh, we've all got a little bit of control freakiness and uh, we've all got our bias. So I'm hugely uh, grateful to those who, who, who've, We've put in around put in the work around our team and and it, it always sounds like a cliche but it really does take a village of people to to get results like what you know tom's now achieving on the world stage that there's a lineage of people um right back to his family and 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 all the auxiliary team who who chip in and and so i swung the pendulum pretty hard that way for maybe a year or two around towards a, a managerial coordinating kind of role uh, the challenge with that is I found it quite uh, energy negative, quite sapping, and was missing uh, being, you know, in in the heart of it. So I now make a conscious effort to try and, I mean, little things. You're at every throw session. You're you're leading the way with the the technical side of things, uh, programming obviously, but. Uh, being in the gym, so I was not in the gym because I've got an S&C coach who works for me and uh, he does a great job and a team around him. So I kind of pulled back from that and then felt maybe I was missing some things by not being there. So now I'm probably at, I'd say, you know, if my guys are in the gym, between the total of them maybe doing 30 sessions a week in the gym, I, I'm probably there for 10 to, 10 to 15 of those. Um, and 
throwing on top of that, plus yeah, all, all the coordinating and managerial stuff. Um, the, the the ongoing reality too is that we're we're based offshore, um, so I'm in New Zealand's probably six seven months of the year, and then overseas for the rest of it. So uh, there's a there's a gift and a curse of being accessible 24/7 on your mobile device. Um, or over the internet and, and it's certainly allowed us to do great things but um, trying to coalesce that with family and and strike the old work-life balance um, which is maybe a bit of a myth but I sound like I'm <laughs> preaching to the converted here yeah. anyway with you Rick but mm-hmm. um, yeah I guess that uh, if you're doing something you love it makes that side of things a hell of a lot easier. No the passion the passion for it is evident and you don't get to what you've got without a great wealth of knowledge but passion as well because uh, like I could listen to you talk about throws for hours, and and that's that passion coming out. Um, but it is it's a pretty it's a really cool sport when you get to into the someone like you in front of me talking about this. It is it's so much it's so complex. Touch on the psychology of some of this stuff. Um, touch on what you guys are doing with these guys. Let's just use Tom because he's mm-hmm. he's obviously one of the big names, but. Let's just use him and say, look, tell me about the week-to-week psychology work or, or and leading up to a competition, let's say 2020, how can Tom be at his optimum in that ring from a mental standpoint? Yeah, it's uh, everything we do is mental, everything we do. And that's really where the work is now for us is around intention, quality of intention, what are we doing and why are we trying to do it? And doing a, a squat because you've got to tick it off your program is different to doing a squat because you want that squat to be perfect and when you start to zone into that level of resolution and detail uh, and you start to train intention that's where you find the gaps and where we're at now we're really trying to explore the the dark corners of, of not just uh, athletic performance but of individuals what are the things that you're afraid of? Because that's the stuff that gets shown up. What are your, what's your upbringing? What, you know, what are your biases? What are your uh, values? What are your preferences? Because how you do anything is how you do everything. And the ability to, to dial in on that, it, 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 I've seen it repeatedly, is ultimately gonna be det- the determinant of how far you go um, in such a simple sport because the ball doesn't change. It's 7.26 kilograms. The circle's the same diameter. It's a it's an incredibly simple sport, but with that simplicity, there's so much depth. There's so many layers that you can peel back. And after a while, you reach a physical threshold that it's got to be about, not just about how you throw, but it's about how you live and who you are. And that's why I find this sport um, so addictive and and... I'm so passionate about it is because it's it's a mirror it, it it turns the mirror on yourself and and there's no one else in there with with you so if you want to if you want to uh, achieve the results you get what you deserve and the further inward you're prepared to go the further you're prepared to uh, reflect change manipulate yourself uh, the, the better outcomes you'll get but it's confronting it's incredibly confronting for a lot of people because uh, we crave someone just telling us what to do, right? Here's what's on my training program. I'm just going to tick that off and then do it. But there's so many layers underneath that that, that have to get revealed once you want to get to the really pointy end. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't expecting you to go that deep. I love it. And we do get there a lot on these episodes. So I knew that you'd be onto it. I didn't know how far. So are you looking after that or you've got a couple of experts as well? No, we've got a great mental skills coach. Yeah. Um, John Quinn, his name is he. Not works. the John Quinn from Australia. No, 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 different John Quinn. It must be a popular name. He, mm. um, so he's the mental skills coach for the Crusaders, the yep. um, championship super rugby yeah, team. And, so. and, sorry, I'll interrupt. Rugby do it so well as well. They so, Jeez. Yeah. yeah, okay, keep going. Um, and it's one of the things, again, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm no, no. beating the same drum, but I feel like it's done really well in New Zealand. There's a, there's a cultural acceptance... Uh, potentially part of the uh, the Maori Pacifica culture that it's okay to talk about feelings and how you are and to not be okay or um, and the All Blacks have done a great way a great job in leading the way on that side of things so often the the sports psych and the mental skills training that's coming out of New Zealand is world leading because um, it's acceptable to talk about that stuff and to to work on nerves to be how do I dominate a contest how do I 
um, not, you know, not pull the handbrake on myself, which we're doing so often. Um, self-sabotage how do I recognize fear how do I make my relationships better how do I make myself a better person and and use my sport as a muse to achieve that outcome and we're talking about throwing but this is talking about any listener in the world about anything right now so the the last five minutes Dale spoke about could be you listening at home and this is any in any shape or form in, in everyday walks of life all this stuff is is so so important so if you, this is the first time you've heard our show, we do talk a lot about this kind of thing, but Steve-O's at the pointy end of elite sport and these guys are harping and harping on it. Yes, it's to move the needle in a performance perspective, but more importantly, to become better human beings and hopefully right. hopefully, have more self-love and, and self-care as well and not just do what we've always done. Let's just do what we've always done and, oh, the coach said that, let's tick it off, but why? I just want to get told what to do. Mm-hmm. But there's no growth there. And there's certainly, we are setting ourselves up for failure in the long run, even if you do fluke a good result. The the benefit and the byproduct of this is someone like a Tom or, or a Valerie who is retired now, is that right? Uh, so Val's just given birth to her second oh, kid. Congratulations. Um, this, this probably isn't a runner's radio exclusive, but it might be one of the first around to know, but she's planning a comeback for Tokyo. So Well, yeah, I'm going to use that. Yet. I might there use that on Twitter somewhere, Steve. <laughs> we might get some, some listeners from the exclusiveness of Val's comeback. But look, these guys, yes, they can move the envelope a little bit, and even some of the guys that are on the edge might be able to throw a qualify just because of this mental coaching and mental standpoint the all blacks are legit anyone read what they do they are so good and world leading i'm not telling dale anything he doesn't know do you do much work with the all blacks s and c type team or it just doesn't fit in yeah uh no is a short answer to that but um one of the 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 decisions that was made by the governing bodies in in new zealand was that the competitive advantage of being a small nation is that they can uh, out collaborate other countries so it is easy to get uh, yeah. a lot of cross pollination between sports so we have programs um, there's a program called the Coach Accelerator program which I'm lucky enough to be on it's a, a three year program over there where we've got a dozen coaches from different sports and we come together four times a year for a week at a time to, to share ideas and talk and, um, and because everyone's from a different domain it's not just getting 12 athletics coaches or 12 uh, rugby coaches together it, you know there's one rugby coach a netball coach a rowing coach a cycling coach a boom 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 so fantastic um, because so good. because we're all from different backgrounds yeah. no one's trying to steal anyone's job we're not treading on any toes so there's a lot more openness and sharing that comes from those kind of domains so uh the, the collaboration side of things in new zealand's done really well and uh probably uh memorably the guy called Mike Cron, who's the um, scrummaging coach for the All Blacks, contacted me out of the blue maybe a year or two ago now and, and said, hey, can I come out to training and have a chat? And um, yeah, that, that's the kind of guys you're dealing with who are, you'd never know. He turns up in, in thongs and rugby shorts and a T-shirt and just strolls out to training with us. And then from that little thing, you know, you get another phone call, hey, we're going to spend a day with the Royal New Zealand Ballet. Do you want to come along? And um, do some do some learning there. So we did that, and then we're up to Wellington next week to go and um, have a follow up with uh, yeah the New Zealand da- Dance Company, and th- they're looking. This this same guy Crono lives in Christchurch. He's uh, a, a god of of world rugby, and uh, he, you know he'll go and spend a, a week in Japan studying sumo and seeing what he can find there to to cross over for the All Blacks. So uh, just good curious people uh, who are looking to yeah, explore the corners of performance that is extremely cool and I'm a bit jealous about all that that is fantastic for you listeners in the states obviously Europe and Australia but the All Blacks are the it's the most amazing rugby side and possibly the most successful sporting team of the last two decades yeah they're up there like yep. they really are and we're talking from an Aussie rules based town here but the Wallabies are that successful and their culture is so famous. There's so many good books about their culture and their mindset and the way they go about life. So if you can do yourself a favour and do some reading, just Google the All Blacks culture. It's unbelievable. So when you're talking to Steve-O, uh, he is dealing with these guys now, which is so amazing for you, mate, from a, a young bloke from, from Murdoch yeah, 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 to be dealing with the best sporting <laughs> team in the world. But you are. You're, you're one of the great coaches and high-performance managers in the world. 
few quick fire questions. Just quickly before we move off that, you, I remember I've read somewhere about you and Tom. You really do empower him as well. So he's all over the. He's competing often with you, not there sometimes. Correct. So you're empowering him to be able to be self-managed as well. Is that right? So yeah. Tell so t- 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 about a minute on that. Yeah, I guess my um, overarching philosophy is to try and make myself redundant, um, and that will be you know job done. And I see that probably some parallels with parenting as well that. Mm. Um, uh, you know, a, a good job. Your job's done when you you kid can fly the coop and be independent. And um, Tom's getting really good at that, and and he's quite a uh, capable and independent uh, competitor now. Again, we swung probably swung the pendulum a little too far that way uh, last year. And in conversation here, he and I said, well, it is actually probably still. A role for a sounding board at times, and that role is very different uh, around pinnacle events. So when I'm when I'm there with Tom, leading up to World Champs this year or the Olympics next year, um, those final weeks are really just keeping a steady keel, and a lot of the time it's just uh, making sure we're on the same page, making sure he's okay, I'm okay, and that we're getting consistency of message uh, rather than anything super technical or tactical. Because the work's done, the work's done in the months and years prior. Um, and so he's expressed a need and probably rightly so that um, I think there will be a, a role going forward for, for our partnership, but it's going to look nothing like probably what it does for a 19-year-old athlete for 28-year-old for Tom at the Olympics tomorrow. It makes a lot of sense. And it also um, shows your lack of ego for one as well. You don't need validation for as Tom Walsh's coach to be in his pocket every second yeah it's, it's not an ego contest no, it's, a it's certainly contest. not you're trying exactly right you're trying to improve him as a human being and, and a thrower as well so apart from the fact you've got a lot of other throwers and athletes to look after apart from that you're trying to make him into a, a self-reliant human being and and thrower and clearly that's going to benefit him long term like far far greater Big fella, it's been fantastic. We've got a couple of quick fire questions to finish with. Your favourite athlete of all time, great man. It could be from any realm or someone you looked up to as a young thrower or footballer or the like. Um, I looked up to my old man um, and still do. Uh, he was not necessarily because of his athletic pursuits. Um, he was a, a pretty good footballer and uh, tennis and all the rest, but that's not why I looked up to him. I just looked up to him because he was a good person and... Uh, I've always admired that in people, more so good, strong character. Um, and even still, I'd go towards that kind of criteria in people. So if I was going to look at footy, someone like an Adam Goods, I think is a great role model. And I've always admired people who, who have something to say and something to stand for. Um, and it doesn't actually matter what that is. It, it could be anything. But uh, the fact that you know, you, you've got a, a responsible person who's got some clear values and then goes about their business and, and it helps if they're good at their craft because it gives them a platform to say mm. that, to, to, sh- to spread that message. But, um, yeah, yeah, Dad, Dad's been a, a, a great person in my life. You're a very good person, mate, and you can see how you've done so well at 31 years of age. 30, something like that. Jeez, you're young, mate. You're, to be doing what you're doing, you're phenomenal. But that's why the listeners is such a good person with good values. Apart from family or friends, three people at a dinner party, great man, that you could just have a beer with and... And maybe have a bit of a chat, but who would interest you to have a chat to? Uh, Jim Henson, who wrote the Muppets. Um, that is random. Yeah, it is random. There you go. There's one you probably weren't expecting that. No. So, um, education hat on, and he wanted to make again wanted to make a social difference, and saw that the way to do that was there, there was a gap once television came around for a show that could teach literacy and numeracy to uh, kids and went to study studied child psychology and brought in brought in a team of people to so everything on everything on sesame street and everything on the muppets is is by design so he looked at what's the appropriate attention span how long can we pitch these characters for before we've got to change the next segment so uh he found a bit of a left field way to to move the needle on child literacy uh, literacy and numeracy um through creating a show so it, it, He's uh, an, a forgotten hero 
Um, no, I remember. I remember Henson created. I did not know all that though. But yeah, yeah. So awesome. he wasn't out there to make dollars or anything. No. He was. He was trying to uh, drive social change, which, and and happened to create a pretty cool show, which stacks up for decades and 40 decades. Years later. Yeah, forty years later, kids are still watching it and benefiting from it. So um, he'd he'd get an invite. Definitely. Uh, who else? Um, I I would like to see Australian politics move forward. Um, and I think we've had some good figures at times. So someone like a Bob Hawke, just to hear his reflections not on... Not for a sculling comp or both. Not for a sculling comp. Well, he'd, well, he'd probably destroy all of us. He'd, I don't know how Jim Henson goes He's on, a the, machine. on the beers. But um, yeah, I, I'd love to chat with Bob just to hear what, what he'd have to say. Anyone who's been on a life journey yeah. and, and, and followed that trajectory across time and then probably for the same reason, I, I'd love to, love to chat with Kerry Packer. Yes. Um, guy who is not necessarily super agreeable um i think he'd bring an interesting flavor to the Absolutely. to the table but um and obviously not going to get that chance now but um yeah i think the, the figure that he was in australian society and and uh to have the amount of power but also responsibility and conscience and and make the change that he did to australian cricket and world cricket as, as well as in business i think i think that'd be a, a pretty good banter between Bob Hawke and, and Kerry Packer. Well, I want to be a fly on the wall at this dinner party because this sounds fascinating. <laughs> I gave that off the cuff as well. So Steve, I had no time to think about that, but what three magnificent answers, big fella. Listeners, it's been our privilege to have Dale Stevenson on today. He will be back, if not in podcast form. We might get him doing a couple of videos from New Zealand at his High Performance Centre for our website because it's not very often you get such an elite coach um, who works with Olympians every day um, in your network. So we are very lucky and very privileged. If there's any questions for Steve-O, you can chuck it up on our socials on Runner's Insta or, or Runner's Face In. He'll be good enough to answer them, no doubt. I'll send them over his way. Dale, thanks for coming out today. When are you off to back home, mate, to New Zealand? Uh, head back home on Sunday, so a couple yeah. of days' time. Been been a great month back here in the old stomping ground, but we've got more work to do. Yeah, and all the best for the 2020. Listeners, make sure you're looking out for Tom Walsh and give us a couple other names to look forward to to 2020. Uh, give you a couple of names. So, you don't have to put pressure on them. But. Yeah, no, that's right. There's a, um, a young distance runner, given that given runners is yeah. here, a uh, young boy by the name Samuel Tanner, or Sam Tanner. Uh, he's coming out of... Uh, the North Island of New Zealand, fifteen hundred meter 1500, runner. So he's beautiful. he's running faster than uh, Nick was at the Nick Willis was Exciting. at the same age, um, and he's got a lot of the attributes. He covers the ground really well and is a good mover. So uh, he'll be one maybe for the fans to keep an eye on. Okay, mate. Thanks so much again. You'll see Steve on a couple of our videos moving forward over the winter. All the best, brother, and thanks so much, listeners. Please do something today that's going to make you better tomorrow. Take care of each other always, and be kind. Cool.